As uh, Bill has said, these have been marvelous days in the life of our church. Really, really exciting, really, really good. We're so grateful to God for bringing Dr. Carter to us. And I think already he is grateful for bringing us this wonderful church to him. It is truly, I think, a match made in heaven uh, with very exciting days to come. So these are all good things from our point of view. But have you ever thought about this question? What is good to God? What is good from God's point of view? Well, uh, there will be an answer provided for us tonight in a text of Scripture. I found it in the Bible. You could too. This particular text was written by Paul, think about it, in A.D. 62 or 63. So over 2,000 years ago, uh, he wrote it, and it speaks to us even today. He wrote this particular passage to someone named Timothy, you know of him. He had a Gentile father and he had a Jewish mother. And his mother and grandmother came to know the Lord Jesus before he, Timothy, did, which suggests to me they undoubtedly prayed for him and they saw their prayers answered because Timothy became a pastor. Uh, the name means uh, God honoring or honoring God. And I think that he lived in such fashion that he um, was consistent with his name. Now, don't think your name has to be Timothy in order to honor God. Anyone by any name could do that. We have three sons. Our oldest is named Timothy, and we named him this name for the very reason. We wanted for him to live life in a way that honors God, and he does. But the other two, though named differently, are doing the same. So could you and I. So this is Timothy. He's a pastor at a church in a place called Ephesus. And Paul writes to him, and I'll show you the text. It's in 1 Timothy. And we're going to look at just a few verses in chapter 2. Look what it says. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. I'll tell you what we could conclude right at the beginning. It's this, prayer is important. Prayer is a very fundamental, uh, integral part of the Christian life. Uh, prayer is part of God's program and mandate for us. Now, it's interesting to see this collection of words used for prayer. Look at them, there are four of them. Entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving. Um, it's a, 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 a fun exercise, but an impossible one to precisely distinguish between these four kinds or categories of prayer. They overlap. There are seven words for prayer in the New Testament. And here, one little old verse, we have four of them. Uh, at the least, we can see, as I mentioned, how important prayer is. And one aspect of prayer that uh, I hope is not too neglected by you or I is this one, thanksgiving. Typically, when we think of prayer, we think of petitioning God for things, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I hope you and I don't neglect also thanking God for the things he's already 
provided us with. For one thing, it's pleasing to him for us to express gratitude. And for another thing, I think it's an, an emotionally healthy for us to have an attitude of gratitude expressed in prayer to a very, very wonderful God. Now here we're told to utter all these kinds of prayer to all men. That's what it says right here, all men. So what does that, what does that mean? Well, I don't think it means every person on earth. You and I couldn't pray for every person on earth. I think it means that we ought to pray for every category of person on earth. What this means is no people group is beyond the extent and range and even the effect of our prayer. This is God's means by which you and I can reach the world, really influence and impact it. I'll tell you what I try to do. Not so well, but I'm working on it. When I pray, I start with those closest to me. So I pray for my family, but I want to I want to enlarge the scope of my prayer. So beyond my family, I might pray for you and your family and our church family and our city and then our nation and then our world. And the reason I could do that is that God here through Paul to Timothy commands it. Pray for all people groups. Nobody, nobody should be left out. Pray without distinction and without showing favoritism. I think that that's what's in view here. And so the text goes on now in the next verse to say this. Do this, you're praying, uh, notice, for kings and all who are in authority. Why? So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. One of the reasons I chose this text for tonight, you might be wondering, is because we are... Um, we have differences of opinion with regard to our government and governmental leaders, both local and uh, statewide and national. And of course, each is entitled to his or her own opinion. But one common denominator for those of us who are Christians, though we may have different political points of view, is that we're commanded to pray for whoever is in a position of leadership. And so you see, Pray for kings and all who are in authority. So that's a little, a little tough if you don't like uh, the man or the woman who are in authority. But I have found that that's, that's just optional. You, you don't have to like, even respect the person who is in a position of high governmental authority, but if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have no option but to pray for whoever is governing us. So that's what this text is saying. And just to prove to you that God means business about this, when this was written, you may know this, Nero was the one in positions of authority. He was a madman. He was a monster. He actually came to be responsible for the murder of Paul and Peter. And yet, uh, we are instructed, they were instructed, believers in that day, to pray even for one such as Nero. Again, doesn't mean you have to respect the person but you must, if you're a believer, you must honor God's mandate and pray for those in positions of authority. And you may be wondering, why is it in the whole discussion of prayer, why is it that rulers or governmental leaders are singled out here? 
I'm just guessing at this. Tell me what you think. I think it's because those are the ones most prone to be neglected by us when we think about praying. Look, we don't like most of them, to tell you the truth. Uh, you know, we, we criticize their positions and so on and so forth. And so I guess it's the people group we're least likely to pray for. And that's why God, I think he's being quite helpful to us. And he singles them out. And he says, when you're praying for all men, above all, don't neglect to pray for leaders and all those in authority. And one of the reasons why that's so important is we could influence them. Think about that. Don't you think this is a great privilege? You and I may never get to meet people in high positions of leadership or authority, and yet we could influence them even from afar through prayer. That's why God instructs us to do so. Specifically, he tells us to do so, notice, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life. Well, that's a good thing, but if you think about it, that's not really the goal of prayer. That's the means to the end. This is the real end, godliness and dignity. So pray for leaders so that in the enactment and implementation of government policies, they're not prejudicial for those of us who follow God. Pray for those in positions of authority that the way they lead and rule and legislate would further godly objectives. Pray that we could, under their leadership, lead such a tranquil and quiet life that it facilitates godliness and all dignity. And you could understand this. There are some governmental leaders who make it very, very difficult to be a follower of Christ under their domain. You have to do it undercover, under threat of death. And, and so God is saying, no, 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 pray that the person in position of authority, even if he doesn't share your convictions, could be so influenced by your intercessory prayer that the, uh, uh, the effect of his or her leadership is that we live a tranquil and quiet life that facilitates the pursuit of godliness. Once again, folks, God has called us to change the world, and I think uh, the way in which every one of us could do so is through prayer. So if I could say this, soon the national election will be upon us. Can you imagine it? Uh, in just a few months, I guess. And at that time, be a good Christian citizen and vote for whom you think is the best candidate. Let me just say this, a as I read the text of Scripture, I think this is our guideline. Vote for some, but pray for all. Even the candidate you, are, you find detestable or least qualified, pray for that one too. Remember, pray for all men, especially those in positions of authority. And now the text goes on here in verse 3 to say, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. So I opened with the question, what's good to God? Now we have the answer. This is good. What? Praying. Make it our business to be prayer warriors. Praying for every people group on earth, especially for those in positions of authority. God finds that to be good and acceptable in his sight. It's good to his eyes. It's acceptable to his heart. And why is that? Well, because he's a savior. And as savior, he really wishes that none would perish, but that all would be saved. And that is really clearly declared in this verse. Uh, 
who desires all men. So look, we pray for all men because God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Let me camp out on this verse just for a minute or two. I don't think this means that all men, all people are going to be saved. That's something called the doctrine of universal salvation, which essentially says everybody goes to heaven. Well, uh, I, you might wish that to be true, but it, it is not true. So, so this verse doesn't imply universal salvation. That is to say that all men will be saved. But this verse is a clear reflection of what's on God's heart. He desires for all men to be saved. Now, does this mean uh, that God is not going to get what he wants since not all people are going to be saved? No, it doesn't mean that because once again, this is my opinion. I don't think all men here means every single man. I think it means every single kind of man. In other words, there's no people group on earth that God favors more than any other. There is no people group on earth that God doesn't love and isn't concerned about. There's no people group on earth for whom Jesus the Savior didn't die. And therefore, it's his desire for representatives of every kind of person on earth to be saved. Uh, that's God's desire. And so that's what the verse says. It does not say he wills all men to be saved. It says he desires all men to be saved. If it said he wills all men to be saved and that doesn't happen, then that means somehow God's will was not done. But that can never be true. If God is sovereign, what he wills to happen will happen. So this is a matter of what he desires, not what he mandates or wills. And isn't it good to feel safe in serving a God like this, whose heart's desire is for the salvation of all people? You know what this means? Um, to put it simply, God is not a racist. He's no respecter of persons. There is no ethnic group. Um, there's no gender. There's no age group. There's no socioeconomic group that God favors over any other. There's no group to be left out. He wants all sorts of people to experience what he has to offer. And what he has to offer is salvation through the right response to his son, the Lord Jesus. And we're to pray for that, that every kindred, tribe, and tongue, representatives of each would all be joined together one day as we gather around the throne and worship together the Lamb of God throughout eternity. So this text tells me God doesn't discriminate. Hey, look at folks. Um, if you have racist tendencies and are a Christian, and it's possible... You really need to deal with it. Be careful because our father likes the mosaic. He likes the diversity in humankind. And he is glorified when people who represent every people group on earth worship him. He loves it when a different people gather together, 
though they be diverse, he loves it when we worship the King of Kings together. I hope you're getting used to that now because that's exactly what heaven's going to be like. So there's no such thing as universal salvation, but there is the universal compassion of God who's made provision for absolutely anyone on earth who wishes to be saved to be saved. Now, folks, if God wasn't willing to save all kinds of people, it would make no sense for us to pray for all kinds of people. Now, here's the final verse we'll look at tonight, verse 5. This is familiar, but let's not take it for granted. There's one God and one mediator. Do you know what I find interesting? See this concept, there is one God? Very few people are going to argue with you about that. Yeah. Most people will find that palatable, receivable. But it's the next phrase that they choke on. There is one God, look, and one mediator between God and men. Now, that's the stumbling block, that there would be only one way to God. One God, sure. One mediator between us and God, how narrow and intolerant can you be? And so that's a real, real sticking point, and you have to figure out whether you think it's true or not. If, in fact, there is one mediator, as the verse says, between God and men, you better know who he is. Well, look no further. Who is he? The man, Christ Jesus. What does this mean? Well, this is a reference to his humanity, and this Christ is a reference to his divinity. It means the anointed one. This special person, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, is both the Son of Man and the Son of God, and he is the one and only mediator between God and man. Now, why is he the one and only mediator? He's the only one who qualifies. I'll tell you why. Look, a mediator is someone who stands between warring parties. Now, you may not have thought this, but you and I are at war with God. We have offended him. Uh, uh, we have violated his law, and so we're at odds with him. All have sinned and fall short of his glory. And so Jesus stands in the gap between us, the ones who have given offense, and God, the one who has been offended, and he takes our hand and joins it to the Father's hand, but he's the only way he could do it, because on the human side, he became the Son of Man, and on the divine side, he is and always has been the Son of God. So can you see Jesus is the only fit mediator? A good bridge that crosses a river has to be firmly anchored on both sides of the river. Well, that's the Lord Jesus, you see what I mean? Therefore, this notion that all roads lead to God kind of a thing, it's a pleasant notion. It's just not borne out by the facts. Only Jesus qualifies, satisfies the prerequisites to be a fit mediator between us and a holy God who we have all sinned against. So folks, though there are many ways to find Christ, you have to go through Christ to be reconciled to God. There's many ways to Christ, but there's only one way to God, and that is through the God-man, Christ Jesus. That's the way 
it is. Now, folks, those who believe in multiple avenues of access to God, many different roads by which we could be saved, even those dear folks are obligated sooner or later to choose one of those ways which they think is the right one. So I challenge you as we draw to a close now, <laughs> even if you're that kind of person, on what basis are you going to decide on which of all those multitude of possible ways to God, which of those ways do you think is the right one by which you, even you, could be right with God? Could I commend to you the Lord Jesus Christ? And I'll tell you why I do it. Uh, he proved he is the only mediator through something called the resurrection from death. Any other pretender to the throne falls short there. Jesus is distinguished from all other possible ways to God on the basis of the resurrection. He died, oh my goodness, an excruciating death. And the evidence of it, he was buried. And then up from that grave, he arose. And the evidence of that are what we call post-resurrection appearances. In so doing, Jesus was vindicated as the one who, in fact, is the only true mediator between God and men. Notice, one God, singular, one mediator, singular, but men, that's plural. So that settles it for me. Look no further. Jesus is the mediator between God and men, all kinds of men, Buddhist men and women and Mormon men and women and Jewish men and women and Muslim men and women. Don't you see? One-stop shopping, if I could be a little crass. Jesus is the way I commend him to you. If he's your savior, well, you know what I'm talking about. And if not, why not? Why not accept Jesus as the mediator between you and Almighty God right now? In fact, I'd like to pray toward that end. Lord Jesus, we bow before you. Why you? Because we're persuaded you are the one mediator between us and Almighty God, your Father. Thank you so much for condescending as God, you existed from before time, but you entered our space and time in order to mediate a wonderful, wonderful relationship between us and the God whom we have offended. Thank you for paying the price it cost in order to make that work. It's your own death and shed blood for ones such as us. Thank you for saving those of us who are saved. Would you please even now see fit to save those who perhaps are watching and listening who have yet to take you up on your offer? Come to me, you said, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Imagine being at rest and at peace in a relationship with an otherwise unapproachably holy God. What a gift. What a gift of salvation that truly is. And I pray, oh God, you might grant it to anyone in need of it, even tonight. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.